Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors, and welcome back to the special podcast series on the property investing journey from start to finish. Now, we've had a lot of conversation about how property investing and growing your portfolio becomes a finance game at the end of the day. So I've got a mortgage-broking guru in the house. We've got Nick Kutsos from Bestland. So Nick's talking to us about things like LVRs and what the sweet spot is for banks. We're talking about the lender's mortgage insurance debate, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, and how to structure yourself so you don't hit your head up against the bank in the future when you are growing your portfolio and the bank says no. I learned a lot from Nick in this one. It's a great episode and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Here's Nick. Nick Kutsos, thanks for joining me back on Geared for Growth. Thanks for having me, Mike. Looking forward to having a good chat. We are going to have a great chat because all roads lead to you, I think, uh, Nick. Um, I don't know if that's a Greek proverb. I think it's I think it's Roman, so it's probably not appropriate to you. But what I mean is, gosh, I feel like I should do this intro again. Um, <laughs> what I mean is that a lot of the podcasts that I've done recently, people talk about growing your portfolio and it all being a finance game. So no matter the properties that you buy, no matter the yields, at some point, the hurdle is going to be finance. So I wanted to talk to you about that, about LMI, whether it's it's Satan itself or whether it's a godsend. Um, everything that we need to know about finance and growing your property portfolio, you've got 18 minutes, go. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with LMI. A lot of people say uh, if you don't have a 20% deposit, you're a mug, it's too much risk. Other people say you can leverage yourself into the market and it might go up a crazy amount and you'd be silly not to have taken advantage. What, what do you think of those arguments? Yeah, it's, it's a common thing that um, comes up when I'm interviewing investor clients, especially now that the property market has gone up. Um, you know, a lot of people have, their equity position overall has increased. So they're looking at pulling out equity to, um, to purchase an investment property. Um, but to me, it, it comes back to the old argument of, you know, are you a Ford guy or, or a, a Holden guy? Yep. You know, there's differing opinions. It comes back to, um, like with investing, should you have your repayments interest only and use negative gearing or should you be a P&I person and um, smash out your loan to get onto the next one? Um, for me personally, I answer that question with a question. Is it better to be in the market or out of the market? I can think of small periods of time where it was better to be out of the market and they lasted for about six months and happened maybe yeah. three times in the last 15 years. Um, every other day, you should have been in. And if you're in for longer than six months, it wouldn't have mattered anyway. It would have been a blip, right? So I think you've answered your question with a question, which is also an answer. You should be a politician. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but for me, it is... Get your deposit. If you've got a sufficient deposit, with or without LMI, let's just get into the market. We've seen what's happened. You know, what was it? Before December, things were just going along nicely. Then what? This started this year, just seeing things just exploded. Mm. And it can continually, um, you know, properties continuing to go up and we can 
that's a whole discussion for another day why that's happening you know supply demand money's cheap so forth. liar loans that's the biggest thing at the moment there's all this talk about these liar loans getting around now the good old um, days you used to be able to sort of you know brokers would say um there's a form where you've got to put in your expenses like i'll fill that out for you all right and then you just go righto um can't do that anymore but somehow we're getting some dodginess back in the system how is that happening Essentially, because if you go with, go directly to a broker, the broker has access to, say, 40-plus lenders, and the broker then has access to each of those lenders' internal policies. So that's what's happening. So you could go to a broker and you'll say, you know, if you went to use, for example, say Westpac, they may want to see the last three months' bank statements to confirm your living expenses. You know, you, you can tell me you're spending $5,000 a month, um, but they'll go for your living expenses and work it out. Whereas the broker might will say, oh, well, let's not go there. Let's go to, say, CBA. Now, I'm not saying this is their policy. I'm just yep. using an example. But CBA's policy might be, no, it's just what you declare your living expenses to be. And then as long as it's in line with him, um, they'll accept that. So I think that's what's happening. A good, smart broker would know you know, to the best of their ability, the bank's um, policies inside and out. And then, um, how do I say this without looking like a con man, but, you know, knowing which bank to go to to make sure they get approved, if you know what I'm trying to say. Well, yeah, of course, because everything's about incentives, right? And a broker doesn't get paid unless they get a deal across the line. And if they can go to a bank that they know they're going to be able to squeeze something through that's going to get knocked back somewhere else. I mean, the client kind of wants that as well, don't they? I mean, they want the money. They're probably quite prepared for a little bit of grey stuff to go on, would you say? They are, but me personally as a broker, you've got to be very, very careful. You know, I sit down and have those strong conversations with my clients. I ensure that they can meet the repayments. I even park the bank's internal serviceability assessments. Yes, you've got to check that, that it qualifies for the bank, but you really need to sit down and have that conversation. Hey, fella, you're looking at borrowing a million dollars. I know rates are 1% and 2% at the moment, but what happens when rates go up to 3 or 4%? Yeah. You know, if, You've got to really sit down and go through it with them because, heaven forbid, you don't want to put somebody into a really bad position. No, no, certainly not. So, I mean, yeah, of, of course, it's a, it's, it's a duty of care as the broker to understand what the serviceability is for that person and what the risks are. So, yeah, obviously you're a good broker. Um, One would hope. Yeah, you'd hope so. Um, <laughs> otherwise we probably shouldn't have recorded this episode. Um, so with, with LMI, for the, 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 po- the process for this podcast series is we're talking about the property investing journey from start to finish. So for anyone that doesn't have a 20% deposit, they're going to have to pay lender's mortgage insurance, um, which is something that the bank takes out as an insurance on your ability to pay your mortgage and it costs X amount and there's differences between banks. Can you give us a bit of an overview there? Yeah, so that's, that's very interesting. So as a broker, again, we've got access to all the bank's um, LMI um, calculations or premiums, how much you actually have to pay. And I'll give you an example. I've just done a couple of examples here. So like you said, it kicks in at 80%. There are a couple of lenders where it kicks off at actually 85%, but then they do some interesting things like have have a higher interest rate or the fees are a bit more. So you pretty much got to crunch the numbers on that if it's, if it's worthwhile or not. But, um, 
So let's say if you were to buy a property for seven hundred thousand, mm-hmm. and let's say you were going to put in the least amount in terms of a deposit, the range for the actual premium is anywhere up to thirty-seven thousand dollars, and as low as twenty-seven thousand between wow. the between the lenders. So there's there's a ten thousand dollar difference. So what I find the sweet spot is trying to keep your LVR, your loan-to-value ratio, at, 80, at 88%. So coming up with a 12% deposit plus the purchase cost. Because it seems once you get above that 88%, it really skyrockets. So right. if we go back to that example, you're buying a house for 700000 This time you've got a 12% deposit instead of a 5%. Um, your LMI is now anywhere up to twelve and a half thousand, or as little as uh, where is it here nine thousand seven hundred. Mm. So Can compare I, that to your thirty odd thousand. There's a big difference. That's a huge difference, and I guess the bank has has done all of their risk modelling, and and that's about the point where it starts getting silly for them. Correct, and there's another thing to consider as well. Um, the interest rate is affected by the, the LVR as well. In the good old days, it pretty much wasn't, um, but now it is. So you start borrowing above 80%, the, the rate does increase. You borrow you know, more than 90%, it increases again. So, But if we go back to our argument, is it better to be in or out of the market? Once you've got a deposit, get in. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, if you if you bought a property two years ago in Sydney with a ninety nine percent loan and an eleven percent interest rate and eighty grand LMI, you're still probably ahead, right? <laughs> Correct. That sounds like a terrible deal, um, yeah. but yeah, go to our website and uh, we'll sign you up to that one. Okay, so um, we've we've talked about um, LMI loan to value ratio sweet spot at, at eighty eight. Let's let's talk about when we're growing the portfolio. There's one thing that people seem to know fairly well and that's that the the bank when they're considering your serviceability won't necessarily count all of the rent for your rental properties they're taking into consideration something like 80 percent is that true broadly speaking yes so again this this is the key or i guess the advantage of using a broker as a broker we know that the lender's policy so um yes some do 80 percent, some do 75 percent um, but there are some lenders who will add back the interest. So although they will only accept 80% of the rental income, they'll add back or what we will call the negative gearing aspect. So the interest on that pr- proposed investment loan is then factored in as, as actually additional income. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that makes a big difference. So there's some lenders do it and, and some others don't. Why wouldn't they all do it? Because obviously it's it's tax deductible for, for whatever entity that's that's purchasing the property, right? Well, I'd never answer a why question when it comes to banks. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. who, who knows, to be honest. If anyone's um, out there in banking land, we'd love to have you on and grill you for your policies. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, that's one example. That could make a big difference. So... Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. So, The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. 
you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Let's. I, I did a comparison of a couple who had one dependent with a $5,000 credit card limit. Um, male applicant was earning 55,000. Female applicant was earning 45,000 with monthly living expenses around two and a half thousand. Yep. So bank A would lend all the way up to 736,000 where the bottom, uh, say bank Z, um, would lend 495,000. So that's, that's the difference. It's the same wow. data we're putting into their serviceability difference, but you've gone from 495000 to 736000 Now, if we look at that as an example, um, gee, I would have, this would have been a great time for me to have Excel open. But um, <laughs> so, so, so what are we talking? We're talking ninety-five grand um, worth of combined household income. Yes. At a ratio of six times, which is sort of like the the maximum sort of accepted idea is that you can borrow six times your income. We're, we're quite a bit above that with the highest range. So does that does that mean that that old metrics of, of, of sort of six times what you pay is the, the maximum capacity? Yeah, because in the good old days it was three or four times but that all changed when obviously interest rates went um have become so low and then also the um serviceability assessment rate has changed um so that that's another thing you know because let's say if you're getting a rate at two percent well you're not really qualifying on on two percent the bank has an internal assessment rate and that that benchmark or 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 floor rate i think they call it serviceability Um, floor is that that's what we're talking about yep and, and that, you know, did change in recent times where it did come down. Um, so, yeah. So, look, and another thing to consider is each bank's look, as, look at your income differently. You know, some banks might not accept your overtime or they may, but they may haircut it at 50% where another bank will accept 100% of it. Yeah. So, these... These are there's so many moving parts, you know, variables when it comes to actual serviceability, and that's why I stress about finding a good broker and sitting down with a broker who knows these policies, who knows, and and honestly, constantly, the bank's policies and serviceabilities are changing. Mm. It's constantly just, changing. Just to make your life much more enjoyable. Oh, it's fun. Um, <laughs> What I don't understand with the banks is like let's let's talk the overtime thing for example. Now it might be out of the employee's um, decision making whether they're going to be able to get overtime. But most of the time, you would assume that if they're getting towards financial duress, they're going to take whatever overtime they can. Right? The banks don't seem to to make an allowance for the fact that your expenses might be X, but when any any of us have our back against the wall, I mean, I will I won't say I'll drink less. Shiraz, but I'll certainly start drinking cheaper Shiraz. <laughs> We're all like yes. that, aren't we? Yes, and that has been the argument when living expenses came in because um, you've got your living expenses before you buy your first home and then you've got your living expenses after you buy your first home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah of course. And, you know, <laughs> I can remember myself just living large, just, just going for it. And then it's like, yes. oh, 
Um, yeah, going out. No, I, I can't do that. You're welcome to come here. We've got a bucket of bleach. I'm going to put some whiz-fizz in or something like that. You know, it's a different life. <laughs> um, well, that comes down to, you know, the different types of fields when they talk about living expenses. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've got you – it's just something you have to pay for. It is literally something you have to pay for. But, but what about, um, say, holidays or entertainment? Yeah. You know, why is that really being factored in? You know, you could really stop going on a holiday. You could, you know, live on two-minute noodles or, or you know. Um, so I, I just think this whole space of living expenses needs to be cleaned up. And and I know there was bills in parliaments and they were going to remove the responsible lending laws, and but I think that bill fell over in the Senate. Mm. Yes, uh, there was a lot of talk around about that. I think that was like around March we were talking yes. about that. Uh, we can't fix the banks today, um, but we can try and work with them because we have to, right? Because if you're wanting to grow a portfolio of three, four, five, ten properties, at some point you're going to have some issues with the bank. They're going to look at what you're doing. You're going to go, great, I've got this equity. Um, I've got it all lined up. I'm going to go and see Nick and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to crack over over into double-digit properties and tell all my mates and everyone will think I'm a genius. Um, But unfortunately, we get into those situations where the bank's just sort of saying, no, you're not passing a metric. Do you see that a lot with with your clients and and how can you navigate sort of head-butting up against a bank at that point? It's all about planning when you're first starting your investment property journey, you know, should you buy the property in your individual name? Should you set, use a company or a trust? Because that does um, make a big difference to your serviceability assessment. Also, I'm, I'm not a big fan personally of crossing the securities, trying to keep you know each property separate because you may, let's say if you had 10 investment loans with Bangay and now you're, you're capped out, but maybe you might have not been capped out if you had two loans with Bank A and two loans with Bank B and, and so on. Um, it's sort of trying not to put all your eggs into one basket. I get a lot of pushback about that because people are like, oh, but it's too hard. Then I'm dealing with two or three different banks and I've got multiple, you know, internet banking. I'm like, but you've got to look at it like a business. Mm. If, you know, the investment property essentially is like a business, um, you've got to do what's, you know, best for your business to, um, you know, to, to make it most profitable. Um, and then also another reason why we try and avoid crossing securities is because if you need to sell a property fast, if, if it's standalone, you can just sell the property and they pay back that loan where if it's crossed, some banks will do a full assessment. And unfortunately, I've seen people who at that time weren't in the same financial position as where they were when they first took out the loan and they've tried to sell a property and they essentially didn't qualify because their really? financial position hadn't changed. So there's some interesting conversations around that. So if there's anything, I, you know, I could say to my biggest tip is trying to just keep your properties separate, borrow up to your 80%, borrow up to your 90%. You can have multiple loans under that 90%. So you could have, say, loan A was the property at Kellerville, Loan B was, you know, was the deposit for the property at Windale or whatever. Yep. Um, you know what I mean? And another little trick, I don't, we'll talk about this, but I must stress I'm not a financial planner or an accountant. Um, 
is if you buy the property in, in a trust name, once that entity's serviceability is maxed out, you could then essentially set up another trust and start borrowing again. So the first trust, all of those loans are done to impact on the next trust. Interesting. That's not yes, something I've heard before. Yes, it's a, it's a little trick and it works wonders because what we do is we get a letter from the accountant and says trust A is profitable so forth and can meet all of its commitments. Yep. So although so don't worry trust A has got $10 million in <clears throat> property and $10 million in loans, that's parked. So it's like you're starting again. Yep. So the key to doing that though, because when you borrow in a trust or a company, you, the individual, are a guarantor. Yes. Which then impacts your serviceability. So you want to limit you as an individual, your debt, your exposure, because that's going to be factored in when you go to, to borrow in the company or the trust name. Mm. So obviously you want to buy your home. And typically people buy their home in their individual name. Um, and then I tell them, mate, just try and keep your credit cards to a minimum no afterpays, it pays, you know, and then start buying your investment portfolio, you know, for a trust or company. But again, I must stress, I'm not an accountant. You need <laughs> financial advice. It's all right. Don't ring me up. You're not, you're not allowed <laughs> to get sued for appearance on this podcast. I've I've written that down on a scrap piece of paper here. <laughs> um, we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to ask you a, a quick question. Is it feasible for, say, a, a, a couple – uh, or even an individual on a slightly better wage, but let's say a couple on on reasonable wages to get their portfolio up to ten and above, are they going to hit some sort of banking issue, or are there enough tricks that a broker and a financial planner and an accountant can do to to get you there without too much hassle if you've just got the planning right? If you've got the planning right, it's achievable. Of of you know. I've had clients with 30, 40 properties, you know. Um, so it's yeah, but it all comes back to the initial planning. Yeah, you know, don't don't rush out on the weekend and start buying investment properties. And and what you'll find is someone will just buy it in husband's name or just the wife's name. Or you really need to sit down with that planner and that accountant and the broker and work out that plan. Get yep. it right from the start because you will hit a brick wall. And then what are you going to do? Sell a property? Switch it into someone else's name and pay stamp duty? I see it all the time. Mm, that's an expensive way to do it. Much better to do it up front. So treat it like a business and have a plan and a team behind you because that's what a business would do, right? They hire the experts to run the marketing department and the sales and the finances and all that sort of stuff. So that's some great advice, Nick. Thanks very much for coming on. It's a, it's a pleasure as always. Okay, thanks for having me. Cheers.